0: Producer Doug here. I just want you to know this is the fifth time I'm trying to record this, so I'm just going to shoot from the hip. All of our DCC audio wants you to know about Pop Culture Classroom. Now, this is a great program. They take comic books uh, to elementary schools, jails uh, to for like, you know, illiterate, barely literate children and, and, and prisoners and They, they do, they have many programs. I'm just making it sound terrible, so I'm sorry. Um, but I want to get this through. Uh, (laughs) uh, it, uh, is an education program, uh, with more than 600 hours of educational programming. Basically, it envisions individuals transformed by the educational power of pop culture to create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little Paul Sheer on this. Sorry. Look, it's a great program. And because of them, we're bringing you these great con exclusives from Denver Comic Con. So please, please check them out. I think they're great. I mean, don't. There's so many things between the spectrum of elementary schools and prisons. There's middle schools and high schools and colleges and halfway homes and a van, you know, down by the river um, that. They hope that homegrown pop culture experiences can change the communities that we live in. I want this to go global, viral, globally. So please, check out Pop Culture Classroom. Uh, I think that's, uh, where's the, uh, there it is. At www.popcultureclassroom.org. They're legit. And hey. Hey. Give them some money. You know why? Because you're not paying for this. Kick him a buck. Kick him a couple bucks. Where's my two dollars? Where it should go to Pop Culture Classroom. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show.
1: a uh, punk rock fantasy horror kind of thing. Uh, I guess there's
2: lots of this one sure, but not sure, but I try to have fun. <laughs> Hi, I write uh, Richard Cadry and I write the Sandman Slim series, and I, like you have discovered, you can have 800 decapitations if you make them funny. <laughs> so, I also have a second series uh, about a thief named Coop. Um, the Everything Box is the first one, and that one's mm, funny in a very different way. That one's uh, much more in the vein of someone like Terry Pratchett, or something like that. So there's darkness, but there's a lot of very silly humor in it. No. Uh,
3: better, better. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to recommend the Everything box. Um, I'm Stephen Graham Jones. I write horror. Let's see, my, let's see, my most recent novel is Mongrels from last year. I just had a novella come out with Tor.com, just did a comic book, and, yeah, I just always write too many books. Right.
4: <laughs> uh, my
3: name is Dan Wells. I write
4: uh, fantasy and science fiction and horror. Uh, I, at least I thought that I wrote horror. My, my main series, The Life of Serial Killer, was made into a movie and they called, some, one of the reviewers said, it's not really horror, it's a coming-of-age comedy about a serial killer. So apparently <laughs> that's what I so. Okay, does anyone have questions to start out with, or should we jump into it? You're so
5: lively. <laughs>
3: we allow that there can be like a Henry from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer out there, and that person is built from the same things we are. We have to allow that we have the potential inside of us, you know. And I think horror that sees darkness inside of us in a way that we're not quite comfortable with, and I think we need at the same time. Yeah, I'm gonna echo the sentiment. I write monsters
1: mostly to get away from people. <laughs> <laughs> way, are way worse and way more terrifying. I think it's probably chiefly
4: all out your monsters are just kind of obeying their nature. <laughs> yeah, well I think for me, you know, when, when Richard was was comparing movies, the thing that makes mur- murderers scary for me is that you don't have to use a movie to come up with an example because there's so many real ones. You know? Like um, I can't remember the guy's last name, but you remember a few years ago there's a story about a guy named Angel who kept a bunch of women in his basement locked up like, for years. Long enough that one of them had an eight-year-old daughter, but she escaped. Um, And that's a real thing that really happened. And, like, most of his neighbors, to my knowledge, have moved away because they had to confront the reality that they've been living next to this for years and years without ever knowing it, and then kind of realizing, wow, humans are terrible. (laughs) They're awful, awful creatures sometimes. Not because like Robert was saying, not because it's it's our nature, but because some of us just choose will willfully to do terrible things.
6: Yes, question.
3: Stephen, did you say that we need the darkness? Yeah, I think I think we do. We when we evolved like on the savannah of Africa, we had everything out there. One can put his teeth through the back of our skull and put us like head first into the food chain, you know? And so we spent millennia being gray. with We've spent millennia with teeth, and teeth in the darkness, and now we live in a world in which we shine light into every sterile corner. And we're still programmed to want those teeth in the darkness. And I think horror gives that to us. It, it, allows, it, it allows it allows the door to crack open, and, and a tentacle to slip through. You know, and, and that feels very comfortable, comfortable to us because yes, a tentacle might be coming through right here, but it might be something glorious coming through another part of the door. You know, so if you crack the door open a little bit,
2: you get the terrible, but you get the wonderful. You know, um in the Middle ages, the churches was center up passion plays.
3: 40, 45 with kids, and when he got scared, it was a call at three in the morning, you know. Um, and I think that for me, like I've sometimes, you know, I think I write horror. I think I deal with dark stuff. And then I will be at a hospital, and I walk through a, um, a hallway, and I see some parents who've been living there for four weeks, waiting on something, you know. And then I realize I'm just, I'm just playing with daisies and rainbows. You that to me is the most scary thing. No, I absolutely agree
4: with that. Uh, there's a, there's a fairy tale. Fairy tale a million names. The one I know by is Fear Not, where there was a kid who was never afraid of anything, and he, his father sent him out to find you know, something that scared him. And he wasn't afraid of all these monsters and this haunted castle and everything, and he ended up becoming the hero that got to marry the princess because he wasn't afraid of any of these things. And then he got married and sat down and realized, well, crap, I have to grow up now. And that terrified him. And I think that that. I mean, that for me, that's it, you know, responsibility, I've got six kids, the oldest one's starting to drive now, Um, trying to think, well, how can I make sure that they, you know, grow up to be good people and that they have enough money to go to college and that, you know, I can continue to support them as necessary. That's terrifying. That's scarier than any horror book or movie that I've ever seen.
5: I don't have kids, so I can't comment on any of that. I'm sure that sounds terrifying. It's the reason I don't have any right now. Uh, but I would say for me, probably what scares me the most when I like look at the world today is willful ignorance. Um, that's just so freaking terrifying. Also, um, comment threads on any article anywhere. Okay. i made many, many late night mistakes going down that rabbit hole, and it's so disparaging. <laughs>
1: So, that just goes back to people are the scariest thing. Yeah, basically. There's one more. Uh, I think the scariest thing I've ever thought of, and I thought of it in the middle of the night one night, it's just haunted me for years ever since, is that I will be away from home, and there will be a house fire, and my dogs won't be able to get out. And now I just worry about that all the time. I'm
6: just, I'm, I'm no good for the rest of this bed.
3: that I'm going to be driving in my truck one day, you know, I'll be going somewhere listening to music, having a great time, and I'm going to look down and there's no keys in the ignition, and I'm going to realize this is all a dream, you know, that, that to me is <laughs>
6: think <laughs> <laughs> One other scary thing that
2: I've experienced is the inexplicable. Uh, I remember, make taking a very simple example. The first thing someone pointed a gun at me, um, First, it was delayed fear because my brain couldn't process Having a gun in my face, and the scary part was then realizing there was a gun in my face, which was scary. But then having it double when I realized I didn't understand that there was a gun in my face at first. It took a while for my brain to get there. So I mean, there are other levels of the inexplicable, um, larger, weird ones that can be on a literally a religious level. Uh, 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 that's a
6: you a concrete example. Of
1: So
5: how do
3: you know uh, when you've crossed the line, or is there even a line to cross from your creative perspective? What was the last one? I'm sorry, you crossed the line and. How do you know there's a line, and when do you know that you crossed it? Yeah? Yeah, you know, I think, I used to think that I was going to cross the line someday, but then I read, Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, and I realized I'm not even close to, to the line, you know? But um, I did, I published one thing where there's a serial killer you do know, right and, um, and the, way, the way he disposes the bodies is he goes to the pound and like claims the three biggest dogs, takes them home, kills them, hollows them out, and cuts the people up and puts the body pieces in the dogs and puts the dogs in to the get run over and mashed and hides the bodies that way, you know? And I thought it was a pretty good idea. And um, it, <laughs> um, I, I, was, I was worried, I was worried after it came out that when somebody, I think it's a good idea and starts doing that, you know. So, now every time I see a on, the, on the interstate, I kind of year around it. You know?
4: <laughs> yeah. guys didn't know what you were getting into. <laughs> no, they asked
6: for it. Yeah,
5: yeah I'll say I kind of had a little bit of that um, with my first novel because the main character is a bully victim and uh, they get put in a coma and then after that they go on a revenge rampage, which I think a lot of people can identify with. Um, obviously, bullying is a big problem. And so a lot of people experience that and I think a lot of people wish they could exact some sense of revenge. So I had my narrator a couple times break the fourth wall and say, hey, I'm doing bad things. Don't sympathize with this. This is bad. I've gone far beyond the realms of what was reasonable or rational. Um, but that was more, that was probably less narrative voice and more my like, concern that someone might read this and think that that was okay and maybe someone else out there was condoning that behavior. So, I, I, mm. I, I don't know. I guess I guess the line is subjective.
2: Mm. I haven't really found a limit in the kind of horror. I have written some pretty dark, some very funny stuff, but I've written some really dark horror too. I think it's a question of approach and intention. Um, I don't do my really hardcore horror to necessarily shock, but again, get into almost an otherworldly sense of the possibilities of the world. You know, terror, terror happens on a lot of levels. So, I, you know, I've never tried to gross people out, I've never tried to do anything cheap. And I think one thing that a lot of people feel about this and I see a lot of it in pop culture and it bothers me is the use of sexual
4: But, depending on how you approach it, and how you present it, you can really kind of get away with almost anything. the line moves a
1: lot. The line moves depending on your audience, depending on the person, depending on the things going on outside of your control in society. The line is moving a lot right now, and it's kind of hard to track sometimes, but uh, if you just approach everything with empathy, as contradictory as it seems for, for a horror writer to approach an awful and terrible scene with that. with some amount of empathy for somebody, you can find that line and maybe cross a little, but then
3: come back from it. I okay, mean, that's kind of the necessary move there. You know, there's also, a few years ago I did a horror novel, At Least of My Scars, and I decided to see how, how far I could go, if I could go over the line. And every time I sat down, I would be like, physically ill, and by the end of writing that novel, I lost 16 pounds because it made me sick to write that novel, you know, but I was glad to, I was glad to get out of a system, That as soon as it was out of my system, more bad stuff
6: just
5: look right up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just going to add on to Dan's comment. Do you think there's a connection there with what you're saying about the humor in that, like, ER docs and, and those staff, they have a very dark sense of humor just to deal with the stuff that they see every day?
4: Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, I, I, anyone who didn't hear your comment, um, that people who, who work in dangerous jobs, people who work in what I call the industry of death, um, you know, doctors, cops, morticians, mm-hmm. I used to work in a cemetery, they have a very different outlook on that, a very different relationship with that, and a very dark sense of humor because I think it's a defense mechanism. It's a way of, of keeping their arms and I think uh, what a lot of us do when we bring supernatural elements into our stories, that's a defense mechanism as well, because that removes the story one step from reality. And it's a way of approaching something awful through this other lens. That's how, in my opinion, most of our monster stories and legends were created. You know, vampire, werewolf, that's just a guy who hunts and kills other guys. Um, and we, in order to deal with that as a culture, we've kind of, kind of inoculated ourselves by pretending that he's actually a supernatural monster. And so we've invented all of these, these legends to, to cover for us, and really it's just
3: humans it being awful. And also humor, I mean humor and horror, I, I've been told that physiologically a laugh and a scream or until the moment of eruption, they're the exact, they look the exact same in the body. Um, and it's really wonderful as a writer to play on that with your audience, to not let them know if they're going <laughs> and, and also, humor is like a pressure release bell in horror. If, if everything is like worse, 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 then pretty soon it gets screechy, like 30% of the novel, and you, the reader's going to stop listening. But if you can reset with a joke or something every few pages, then they can start climbing that tension ladder again. Whatever. There's a, uh, one of Dean Coutts' books, called, I think it's called
4: Tension. I'm oh, you yeah. remember the right one? Yeah. Where it, it's, and I, you know, I haven't talked to him about this, I don't know if this is actually what he did, but I kind of see that as him doing an experiment in never releasing attention. It never lets up. There's never a pressure valve at any point in that book, and it is his hardest book to read because of that. a question? Um, in, the, in regards to, like, speaking of comedy and horror at the same thing, and, like, where the line is, um, in comedy it's punching up versus punching down. Do you think that there is an element of punching up when you write horror, like in, in regards to the joke about the, the kid and the killer, the killer's the butt of the joke, not the kid. So it's like, it's easier to handle. Do you think that plays an element as well when exploring horror? I think so. Um, sorry, I'm not blowing it. Um I'll say one thing and then I'll let them oh. uh, You look at kind of the recent, really successful horror comedies, stuff like Cabin in the Woods, or uh, Tucker Dale and Tucker versus Evil. Yeah, Tucker, versus, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, both of those are definitely punching up. The butt of all the jokes in Cabin in the Woods is corporate America. Uh, you know the butt of all the jokes in Tucker and Dale. <laughs> yes, Sorry. Okay. I love that movie, and I can't remember the order their names are in. Uh, it's not making fun of the backwoods rednecks. It's making fun of the backwoods college kids that. Are usually the ones in movies who get to make fun of special uh, Um and so I think that there is a very strong element of that. What
2: you have, it's just a good. It's just a good uh, policy in general. <laughs> you just there are too many groups or too many people who we we've, we've spent. I mean, for, you're punching down, you're punching at people like us, who dress up, have a obsession that makes them happy. So, I think we have to be careful, especially in community like this, of where, where the humor is going. I like this
3: question. I never understood about punching up, punching down a before I got it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, and, and I'm glad you brought this up, because I do think that quarter deals with that same issue of punching up versus punching down. When you read uh, Rats by James Herbert, that is the most punching up book ever. That's basically the poor kid getting his revenge on all the rich people in London that used to look down on him when he was little. And then he grew up and he wrote this book about rats eating them all. Um, and that's a really strong element in horror in addition to I think you? I think you can punch down a little bit,
1: as long as it's siding with the person, as long as you're siding with the victim in that scenario. And a lot of what I have to do
5: How can you use insanity in writing without like, making it cliché? Oh, I have some opinions on that. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Go for it. Share those opinions. Okay, um, I think one of the most important things you could do is actually talk to people who, you know, I, I'm assuming when you say insanity you mean like they've got really extreme schizophrenia or they're bipolar or DID or something like that that's really kind of overtaking their lives, it's out of control. Is that what you mean? to therapists, you can talk to, I mean, you can find interview after after interview online now um, and get connected with someone who actually deals with this stuff on a day-to-day basis. I think the, what bothers me, um, and I didn't see the new film with the McAvoy guy, yeah, it looked like it was gonna do what you were just talking about, if someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but. but, You're wrong. No, it was good, okay. Um, Basically the concern being that you're turning this, you're dehumanizing this, And you're kind of making their ailment, the thing that they're struggling with, a commodity. And I think that that's where it gets really tropic and annoying. And like, so I would say the first place to start is actually speaking with someone who deals with it and/or experiences it. Uh, I think people are getting a lot more open about talking about it as well. Um, I actually have some friends who are bipolar. If you you need any references. yeah, that's kind of where I would, would start, and honestly, if you Google what are the most annoying tropes about the same people, you'll find lists and lists and lists of things to
3: avoid. I just, I'm not sure how to do it, but how to do it wrong is if you read the story such that person A is schizophrenic, therefore they are a killer. You know, you don't want to reduce somebody like that. You want, you want them to be a killer because that's who they are, and schizophrenia is just one facet of their character. There's a a strong tendency in
4: our media to either demonize or outright canonize mental illness. Uh, And so on the one hand you have something like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, who basically was evil because he was transgender, Uh, or, you know, someone—and then on the other hand you've got—and I I misspoke there because I did not want to present transgender as a mental illness. That was my mistake and I apologize. Now on the other end of the scale you've got something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that presents mental illness essentially as a lifestyle choice. And who are you to tell them that being schizophrenic is wrong? And that kind of attitude has really screwed up mental health in our nation. Um, You are today in America ten times more likely to be in prison than in therapy. And that's, I mean, that's offensive. that should be offensive to us in the culture. And so I've written books about schizophrenia, I've written books about um, conduct disorder, about sociopathy, about um, multiple personalities, uh, and all of, these, all of these different things. And what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, at least, is to present those things as real as you can. Don't sensationalize them like she said, I mean, that, that's the first place you go, So you talk to people who actually live with it and, and find out what it's like. What is it like day to day? Um, there's a lot of great resources you can find in technical manuals. This is exactly how schizophrenia functions, but an even more valuable resource is gonna be like the therapy books. Your husband has schizophrenia, how do you deal with that? How do you live with him and how do you go on with your life and make it work And that's where you're going to find the real meat of being able to present that as a real thing, rather than just as some kind of monster.
2: Find something exhausted mm-hmm. after writing something really horrific. Um, in a good way, I mean kind of what you were just talking yeah, about. Yeah. Like you got it out, you didn't hold back. Right. And you were true to yourself, true to the story, and if you do it right, again, you're not cheapening the characters, if you're dealing with mental illness. Um, it's like, wow, I just did horrible with this poor slot. I mean, he deserved it.
5: Rape or um, subjects that we don't necessarily want to talk about as a society. And one of the things that I feel horror does is it actually allows us to look at it in a way where um, we actually can begin to empathize with victims. So how do you? I mean, how do you handle writing a scene like that that it has to do with something like that, where you're really able to bring out both how horrific it is and bring empathy into it? Like when you're like writing, what are other mechanics to it? Like what would you let flow? How do you how do you do it?
3: <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's it's always um, when I have something terrible like bullying or something going on in the, on the page, yeah it it is rough to engage it, but at the same time, most stories are closed justice systems, so that the bad people are gonna get their dues by the end of the story. <laughs> so I feel good yeah. in that way. I don't know.
5: with small things like, what do they like to read? What do they like to eat? It doesn't have to be this big like, diatribe of everything you have ever experienced in life, but
2: For me, the way I, I will write it is I don't think I need to explain to you the feeling of the person being bullied. You can, if, you know, you can understand that, and I, for me, writing it from the outside like that puts the reader um, in a position where they are participating in a way that's different than if I wrote it from inside the, the victim's head, where hearing their thoughts uh, as the bullying is taking place. I think that sometimes portraying things with that cold clinical eye can sometimes um, create more of a sense of horror, but also more of a sense of empathy for the person who who is the victim. into detail versus imagination Uh, if you put enough on the page yeah it kind of gets into a difference for me detail versus imagination if you provide all the details then I don't have to think of it in my own head if you if you give me just enough that I make it horrific or I make it horrible or I empathize empathize with that person that that's more of a a concerted you know connection between me and the writer or the story yeah that's that's one of
4: the one of the first things i learned when i when i started writing was that uh, your brain has such a better special effects budget than any book that i can write and so i mean that's really what you're trying to do is
3: give you all the tools you need to terrify yourself yeah, what that does is it makes the, the reader a participant in the creation and maintenance of this story, and they thereby feel some ownership of it, and they invest more. I think it can scare them better when they're invested. I don't think you have to stick to that. I've written a couple of stories.
2: Um, a story in one of Ellen Gabler's novels is called An uh, Ambitious Voice Like You, where I think sometimes you can really dig into what this moment is. Horror of a moment, where you can just get right up close—a close-up of what's going on here. It was one of the nastier stories mm-hmm. I've ever written, and I had a good time because I didn't usually write that kind of story. I wrote the—we the, have the Jaws
6: scenario where we don't see a shark, yeah. Yeah, we don't see the shark, that is a shark. Um, sometimes it's really great to do the opposite. It's like here's a monster, you know. Put the monster right out in front and make the <coughs> monster part of the story, not the hidden part of the story. Just a sort of uh, you see this in Twilight Park work sometimes. It's like the monster's right there. You're having breakfast and time,
2: the monsters are right there. Deal with And how you how you react how you interact with the monster can be really effective in a very different way. I, I think for me one of the reasons that
4: that style works. Is because you can't get away from it, you know. So you're you're being scared from a different angle, you know. It's like you're strapped into a roller coaster, and you're strapped in, and you can't get out. And I'm just going to show you this monster, and you either stop reading or you keep seeing the monster, and so you kind of you're you're stuck with it, and you can't escape it. Yeah, Mac. That- I'm curious.
3: Definitely, you can definitely explain the more of the
5: Yeah, I think um, as a reader, my favorite thing is uh, I don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So if you can kind of hook me on, like, why would someone do this? I'll kind of keep reading and want to know a little bit more about the villain. I, I agree with him. Red Dragon was a bit much. I don't need to know all of it. Um, but I think if you can kind of hook someone with the mystery of all of it and you made your villain's motives really complex and layered, that's something that I'm definitely
6: also depends on your definition of villain.
2: Uh, We were talking about your book Mongrels earlier. A family of werewolves. Ostensibly, they are the villains. And yet you're portraying a family uh, setting.
4: Um, the movie starts off about somebody else, and you think it's about this blonde lady who's stealing money from her boss. And she's the main character for a solid like 45 minutes of that movie. And she meets Norman Bates, and she ends up in this creepy hotel, and then all of a sudden she's dead. And Norman's like, oh crap, my mom killed her. I need to hide the body. And he puts her in a trunk and tries to sink her car into the river it starts sinking down, and then it stops. And the camera goes to his face, and he's kind of biting his nails, and that one shot is the most brilliant part of that movie for me, because instantly you are on his side, and he is your new main character, and you sympathize with him for the rest of the show. Because you've seen that moment of fear and vulnerability from him. He's trying to hide the main character's body in the mirror. (laughs) Sympathize with him because you've suddenly seen this from his point of view. I have to hide his body when my mom will get caught. And that moment changes the entire thing. And for me, that that moment is what makes that movie a dark.
3: They always come down to can we use our brains? Can we use our human brains, our smart monkey selves? And so, if you can break the story, so that you can champion our own intelligence, our own tinkering, then I think you're on something. I think most of them follow me. Yeah. I think almost,
1: almost every good monster movie before it ends has to turn into a different kind of movie. Like you can only bring in so much horror. Before you show the monster for what it is, we get use of the monster and we move on, and then it has to go somewhere else. Like a, like a-
4: There's the monster you never see. There's the monster that you sympathize with. There's the monster who's just unbeatably awesome and can always outsmart you and outpunch you and everything. And for me, Jaws starts as that mystery that then turns into this tense thing. And then at the end, we're not dealing with the hidden monster. We're dealing with the undefeatable onslaught juggernaut that we just can't escape from, and, and so it's a different kind of monster. Certainly, it does have that pivot, but I I wouldn't say that it stops being a horror; it just becomes a different kind of horror. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: just to kind of answer your question a little more directly, I think um, if you're if you're trying to create a villain, you kind of have to go with where the story's going, I think, and keep the integrity of it. So I think sometimes you do end up with really strong motives and those get right now, and the reader gets to know those, and then I think sometimes you end up with the ambiguous one. I would say it probably just has more to do with the integrity of the narrative the track you've kind of taken, where the story goes, and then it's kind of up to the reader to choose what they prefer. You're never gonna write a book that all horror fans like, or even your own fans like. You might put something out and people are like, oh, that last book you wrote this crap, or you know, whatever, it just kind of happens. I just think you need to stay as integrous to your story We have time for one more question. Oh, give me a hand when I first
6: step back. (laughs)
3: be thinking of it as another part of who the person is, who the character is. I wouldn't want to define that person by their disability, that character by their disability. It would just be, well it's like um, they have brown hair, they're and also in a wheelchair. It's, it's not their defining characteristic, I would, I would think. Yeah, it's dangerous. Uh, what
1: do you say? Posh? Yeah, yeah, just thinking about exactly and down exactly what makes Hush. I really liked it. I thought it was good. It was a good interpretation of that. But it also set about with my main character, kind as being said. So it set about with disability at the forefront. And it made the disability itself part of the <laughs> character. Uh, the weakness that, that people perceive in you for having it and how that can be both exploited and turned. On people exploiting it. So I think it's certainly best practice to uh, not define your character by a disability.
2: Centers on um, you know uh, madness. That's the that's the that's the cliche That's the one you see most often is um, the serial killer is just a madman. Uh, and then the other part is what I think is kind of the gimmick. that representation
6: can work best. Okay. That's it, guys. <laughs> <I'm> sorry, <laughs> but sorry. Thank you for
0: coming. We If you liked this, check out some of our other shows like Mr. Right, Exotic Liability, and No Applause, Just the Clap. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher.
6: Oh, yeah.